are familiar with uh, what's happening in Houston. Any updates, Becky? Uh, no. Is uh, uh, Rick and Rick King and uh, Amy are they still? A, and I think wasn't their house really inundated with water? I think I heard that as well from Dolores Wise. Dolores Wise's house uh, once more had had water, third time. Um, but as she says, now I know the drill. So she knows exactly what needs to be done, and she's got right on it. So, but there were a lot of others uh, I know in uh, Houston proper. Um, uh, n- none of the churches that. We that we are, you know that uh, we that are on our prayer list were affected, as near as I can tell. But uh, a lot of the members were. As a matter of fact, uh, West Houston Bible Churches they tried to have uh, Bible class last night, but a lot of people were just not going to be able to be there. Uh, either number one because of the difficulty uh, in getting around some of the flood streets or number two uh, the difficulty with traffic um, this traffic is pretty well snarled so uh, they are going to start meeting the church the service will actually go during the week at one o'clock in the afternoon and those who can make it can make it those who can't who but aren't able to go to work or they're going to live stream it and then those who uh, normally would be there but need to work we'll just be able to uh, uh, watch it that uh, at night from the the website so there's you know they're starting to kind of work around the difficulties and the problems that they have but uh, we just you know to continue to be in prayer for them uh, we also some of us received a, an email a rather detailed email from Art Hurtado and because of his uh, his ministry right now with the uh, Hurtado Foundation but also connections he's made um, in the Caribbean because of uh, his sailing he has a lot of friends that are in many of the islands and uh, of course we also have friends that are down in Florida such as the Todsons uh, friends from other ministries and we we need to be prepared, be praying for uh, Irma as that uh, hurricane. It's a, another rather large and powerful hurricane. Winds up to 185 today in British Virgin Islands. And so, uh, again, there are many tracks for where it could go or might go, uh, but we just uh, be in prayer for that and the way the way we pray for it is uh, some people will be praying that God would turn the hurricane or that he would lessen its intensity or stop it completely have it just I guess evaporate but uh, when trials and adversity uh, impact our lives we rely on God there are tests in our lives to see if we will depend on him 
and we don't need to have the adversity just removed like that. We need to have the spiritual strength and the resources to face them, face it with the Lord, realizing that the battle is the Lord, that the Lord takes care of us. And we have many verses in the Bible that tell us that God can protect us in the storm. It doesn't make any difference how how violent or how dangerous the storm might be. Uh, God does not often change the circumstances. He changes us so that we can face the circumstances. And I think that's <clears throat> important for us. As we begin our study tonight in Zechariah, let's take just a few seconds, closing our eyes and bowing our heads. And closing our eyes and bowing our heads, and then I will open us in prayer. Heavenly Father, we are thankful that you provide for us in every condition in life. And we sometimes think that the uh, the adversities are more than we can bear and they would be if it was not for your provision therefore we're thankful for your provision and we pray that we will uh, see believers in your son the Lord Jesus Christ relying on you and being extraordinary witnesses as they face the continued uh, hardships in southeastern Texas and maybe Louisiana and other places where the storm was heavy, and also in the path of Irma. Uh, we certainly pray, Father, that uh, all the necessary uh, precautions would be taken to minimize the damage and the destruction by those who are there. We pray that they have that capability. We pray that they would use common sense uh, if it's uh, important for them to depart, to leave, that they would, uh, and if they are able, that they would. Uh, those who may be required to stay in the path of the storm, that they would do all they can to provide themselves uh, safety. Pray that they would uh, uh, be able to protect their property and the property of others. We pray that they would be willing to help one another. We know in uh, very often in situations like this, it's um, groups banding together to assist each other that uh, sometimes uh, carries the day, and we pray that that would occur. But we also pray that in the midst of all this, that um, the true safety net, the true uh, uh, matters that rescue uh, are those that are in the spiritual realm, and we pray that uh, believers would be, uh, again, excellent testimonies, excellent witnesses, that those who have heard the gospel in the past would maybe in the face of danger uh, turn to the Lord Jesus Christ to be their Savior and to be their source. Father, we pray that we would not just uh, neglect the opportunities that we have to pray and to be 
supportive of, of those who are in need. Help us to not only pray, but uh, to check on our friends and uh, help them in any way that we can. Certainly pray for Pete and Linda, two of our um, uh, church family members, that they would be safe, that they would be able to take care of um, Pete's father. We're thankful for the uh, uh, the movement that they were able to, to make towards Orlando. And, Father, we continue to pray for um, those who would be uh, traveling in and out of that area, that uh, they would be able to, to make the necessary progress and find the, the necessary shelter. We ask now, Father, for us as we continue to uh, progress in Zechariah, that we would understand the importance of some of these passages, particularly tonight as we look at something that not only is recorded in the Old Testament, but also in the New Testament, and the uh, some of the challenges that are there to understand it, but also the value that's there, Father. And we ask for God the Holy Spirit's blessing and assistance as we study tonight. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. We are in Zechariah. Zechariah 11. And quite frankly, tonight, uh, the verses that we're going to study, Zechariah 11, verses 12. We actually studied verse 12 last week. And then verse 13, verses 12, 13, and 14 are uh, very curious passages. And um, again, as I may, I may have mentioned last week, these uh, verses might seem on the surface to be uh, somewhat, uh, what can we say here, um, maybe confusing. Uh, some would just read right through them and believe that they're rather superficial, uh, as it seems that somebody is being paid, maybe one of the shepherds, uh, 30 pieces of silver, uh, and then it's rejected, and then on we go. But uh, there's a lot more to be learned in this passage, and uh, scholarship has wrestled with these passages, and we're going to see some of the scholarship tonight. But then also it's a wonderful passage to see how it relates to the New Testament and how the New Testament uh, authors have addressed this. Not only that, but how uh, this aligns, since this is the Lord Jesus Christ speaking through Zechariah, we then see in the New Testament that uh, it's not the Lord Jesus Christ that's really involved with the words, but his life certainly is. So this is this is a great passage, and I have to tell you that I have enjoyed uh, soaking in it over the past uh, several weeks. Verse 12, we know, first of all, as we uh, get back into Zechariah 11, that we were expecting a a great blessing to pop up in chapter 11, but instead we see that the chapter starts with judgment. And in verse 4, we see that the Lord says to Zechariah to feed the flock. Well, Zechariah, uh, as a prophet, is feeding the flock, certainly telling them 
uh, and providing to them the information that he is receiving from the Lord. But we believe that he is actually role-playing for the Messiah. And therefore, as we move from verse 4 all the way down to verse 11, we see that it is the Messiah who is, um, uh, we could say the Lord Jesus Christ, the Messiah is revealing through Zechariah this information. And we've seen the historical importance of it. Uh, And then we saw down in verse 10 that he took my staff, and the staff was grace or favor, and he cut it in two, and this is the breaking of the covenant, the favor, the grace that was extended to Israel. And that is going to be the case uh, when Israel is destroyed, and we believe here this is probably the uh, the timing is probably around A.D. 66, A.D. 70, when we see the invasion of the Romans and the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple. And then verse 12 it says, Then I said to them, and of course this is Zacharias speaking, but again we believe that this is the Messiah. And the Messiah is speaking to them. And who is them? Well, them is going to be Israel. Uh, He's speaking to Israel. This is the Messiah. And the Messiah is, even though this is Zechariah, we know that even in our, uh, our Sunday school classes, the Roots of Faith, that there is a deliverer, and we learn more and more and more about that deliverer as we progress through the Old Testament, till finally, in uh, the time of David and the other uh, writers of the Psalms, we learn that there's we learn quite a bit about the Messiah, and then Isaiah writes more about the the Messiah and Jeremiah, and those are what's known as the pre-exilic prophets, and then during the exile we pick up information from uh, writers such as Daniel, and then afterwards, and Ezekiel as well, and then afterwards, we see these post-exilic prophets who are now writing, and they're writing more about the Messiah. And here we have this remarkable statement that says, Then I, Zechariah as the Messiah, said to them and this is Israel, if it is agreeable to you, give me my wages, and if not, refrain. And we studied this a little bit last week. What does this mean? If it's agreeable to you, give me my wages. This is not uh, to be taken. It certainly could be, but it's not to be, I don't believe, to be taken as someone who is in the middle of employment and Uh, week to week or month to month they're paid and so at the end of a certain period of time we're paid no this is someone who is being released or someone who is being discharged Uh, the the old saying is your services are no longer required is sort of the the old British saying Uh, and here the Lord as the Messiah is being dismissed He is either not accepted, even though up to this point we see that the Messiah is even working in Israel's, uh, on Israel's behalf, but he is now rejected. The Lord Jesus Christ during the first advent being rejected. 
And he says, if it's agreeable to you, give me my wages. And the wages would be Israel saying, well, uh, you can see this maybe working out. What do you think he's worth? What do you think the Messiah was worth? Uh, protection these years, provision. Um, you, you can almost say, you know, he served well uh, during times or something like that. Well, the passage says that they weighed out for my wages 30 pieces of silver. Uh, 30 pieces of silver, of course, to those standing right in front of Zechariah doesn't have any uh, correlation to the New Testament and Judas. So what does it mean to them? It would mean to them 30 pieces of silver was a designation for a, a servant, a slave, that has been either uh, traumatically and uh, probably mortally wounded and what is the recompense here and the recompense well the mosaic law says 30 pieces of silver so the best that they could do here is for a servant or a slave that is of no use to them no longer of any value and 30 pieces of silver and therefore this is someone who is being dismissed more or less uh, now 30 pieces of silver of course was not uh, an insignificant sum I think I mentioned this last week but in reality in relationship to the Messiah it is an insult 30 pieces of silver and you'll notice he says if you don't want to pay anything if you don't think I was worth anything then you, can, you don't have to pay anything then forget it we might say and therefore, what this tells us, and you know, the more I read it, the more I understand it, I believe, it, it demonstrates the relationship and God's view of how the nation of Israel was relating to him and viewed him. This was their attitude. Their attitude would have been, uh, let's just call, what do you say we call it even? You can depart, and we'll call it even. Um, so the the relationship was not only strained, but of course they were trying to kill him. Now, knowing that that this is the um, the prophecy, or at least what the Lord Jesus Christ is saying here. Now we can begin to put this together with what happens many years hence, all the way into the first century for Israel and the betrayal by Judas. And we're going to, to study that tonight. It says, so they did. They weighed out for my wages 30 pieces of silver. And now verse 13 said, says and this is I think where we actually finished last time and the Lord said to me throw it to the potter now throwing it to the potter is really somewhat disconnected to what we've been reading at this point there's no uh, foundation there's no uh, previous allusion in Zechariah to a potter or to pottery. But it's throw it to the potter. Now again, I think I'd have to say, 
if we were the Jews who were standing in front of Zechariah, this phrase would have meaning to us. We would know what it means. But we're left to try to determine just exactly what does that mean when uh, the Messiah says, throw it to the potter. So they weigh out this rather insignificant, and and this point uh, is not to be minimized. It is a disgraceful amount. Now you can begin to understand if someone, if you had been really providing we would have to say that the Messiah provides invaluable service. Service that really cannot be uh, evaluated. You can't place a price on it. But they did. And they gave him the wages that you would give to uh, a non, now a non-functioning or maybe even a dead servant. When they put that in his hand, it's such a minimal amount. What does he do? I think we could use the phrase, he throws it in their faces. Because it is uh, a shameful amount. And in throwing it back at them, he really is shaming them. This is such a disgraceful amount. I'm not even taking it. I'm just throwing it back. And every now and then we'll see someone do that. They'll say... Well, I've not seen this done. I think I may have seen it in a movie or something when someone would tip a waiter such a minimal amount that they would look at it and then they'd just put it back on the table and say, thank you, but you don't need to put yourself out. That's the idea. That's the idea here. So, and the Lord said to me, Zechariah, Throw it to the potter. And you'll notice this phrase, and this is not a bad translation, that princely price. Well, this is not a princely price. This is sarcasm. And that helps us to understand what the Lord is saying here. That princely price that they set on me. And you'll notice the phrase here that they set on me. And again, not a bad translation. You'd set a price on a servant. And the Lord is a servant. So, he, the terminology fits here from the princely price that they set on me. So I, Zechariah, took the 30 pieces of silver and threw them into the house of the Lord for or to the potter. We'll take a little closer look at that and we'll try to work on... on it Really, the translation to the potter is probably a better translation. It can maybe be understood both ways here, but I think to the potter is a little bit better. All right. Well, let's look at Zechariah 11.13 and kind of take this part a little bit. Uh, Again, well, let me just start here. Point one, I would say, that the Lord tells Zechariah what should be done with this imaginary sum because it hasn't been paid, but the Lord Jesus Christ is describing this for us. And 
the text doesn't say why the Lord told Zechariah to surrender the payment, but it seems the act of rejecting the sum here indicates the disgust of the Lord for Israel rejecting him. That seems to be the inference. Rejecting the money by throwing it back at the givers indicate an inference of dishonor and shame towards those who gave it. So there is disgust in the amount and then there is shame and dishonor, disregard as it goes back in the other direction. The price was determined by Israel and in relation to the Lord, the Messiah, it was a paltry sum, a shameful payment for that the Messiah for all that the all that the Messiah had done for Israel. Secondly, the price was to be cast to the potter in a symbolic act, and I've given you Jeremiah nineteen one fifteen here, and we're, we'll turn there in a moment. But we might ask the question: Why thrown to the potter? And I think I've tried to explain this as we went over it. Uh, is the question that's not easily answered. As a matter of fact, as I was studying this and looking, you know, every now and then there's been a lot of uh, really wise people who who have studied these passages, and uh, it's helpful sometimes to to read them. And sometimes, boy, they it seems like they nail it. And other times, there's very little. Sometimes they'll have a thought or two and it seems to me like they're very wrong but even when they're wrong it's helpful because they bring up ideas that stir other thoughts but anyhow first of all it's possible that the answer should be understood as the potter was the lowly artisan and generally poor or impoverished therefore giving the money to the potter would be like giving it to the destitute or the beggars okay well that's one thought, but the I, but the the word here is not give it. It's throw it, and therefore, I I don't think that's the best interpretation. Another possibility, secondly, is that throwing the sum was similar to the potter throwing, and I think this is how they would have understood this to a certain extent throwing broken, useless pot sheds, pot, share, pot shares, into the trash dump. You know, 30 pieces of silver is like the potter who has broken pottery here going over and throwing it, just throwing it away. And throwing it to the potter has that sense along with it's a disgust that you gave me this we're just throwing it, throwing it back. The money paid to the Messiah was like so much broken pottery being discarded, thrown away into the refuge pile. Throwing it now into the house of the Lord, uh, I think I'm, I may address this, uh, but throwing it into the house of the Lord, let me... Uh, just address it right here. Throwing it into the house of the Lord. Um, that's another question. 
uh, again, we don't have the chief priests who are facing Judas, and Judas comes there to them. Therefore, here is uh, Zechariah standing in front of the Jews in front of him. And again, this is prophecy. So we we could probably say that this is uh, the house of the Lord is built. But how would it be understood? And I think uh, throwing it into the house of the Lord was like saying the house of the Lord was the trash bin. If the potter and the throwing, because that's what the the, the potter would do, and we're going to see this um, down in the uh, uh, the Valley of Hinnon. As a matter of fact, it was during this period of time that the southern gate of Israel was known as the pot the potsherd's gate because. The potters would take all of the broken pottery. They would go out that door and throw it down into the trash dump, which was in the Valley of Hinnon. Today, that gate is the dung, the dung gate. We went in and out of the dung gate uh, quite a few times. And for anybody else that's been to Israel, the southern gate is today known as the dung gate. But back then, it was the potsherd's gate because the potters would go out and throw the the uh, potsherds down there and they would throw it out there and so if we use that analogy throwing it into the house of the Lord was like saying the house of the Lord was the trash heap the spiritual condition of Israel was the reason the Lord was being rejected the spiritual condition of Israel was no better than that what was found in a refuge dump in the garbage dump the translation to the potter I think is better than for the potter the potter did not generally make much money and would be considered low on the social and economic chain throwing the money of the potter again was probably has this sense of giving it to the poor but it is uh, throwing it um, into the, the house would be like throwing it into the uh, into the, the trash dump uh, now Zachariah here may have alluded to Jeremiah 9 where the prophet 19 where the prophet went to the potter's house as a symbolic action foretelling the impending destruction of Jerusalem much as one encounters in Zechariah 11 this suggestion agrees well with the overall theme of judgment that pervades chapter 11 now i've been talking about the potter let's let's turn to Jeremiah 19 Jeremiah 19. And this is an important passage because Jeremiah, and this is going to be important as we go forward, Jeremiah is constantly using the potter and the clay in his, in his writings, in his prophecy. Uh, look, at, look over in verse 18, or chapter 18. Jeremiah 18 the word of the Lord which came to Jeremiah from the Lord saying arise and go down to the potter's house and there I will cause you to hear my word so he goes down to the potter's house Uh, this is where the Lord is going to show him Jeremiah uses a lot of different 
uh, objects, for symbols. And one of them is the potter and the potter's vessel. He said, Then I went down to the potter's house, and there he was making something at the wheel. And the vessel that he made of clay was marred in the hand of the potter. In other words, he made a mistake. He's got Now he has a defective product, pot, a uh, vessel. So he made it again into another vessel, as it seemed good to the potter to make. Then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, O house of Israel, can I not do with you as this potter, says the Lord? Look, as the clay is in the potter's hand, so you are in my hand, O house of Israel. The instant I speak concerning a nation and concerning a kingdom, to pluck up, to pluck down and destroy it, if that nation against whom I have spoken turns from its evil, I will relent or I will or forego the disaster that I thought to bring upon upon it. And the instant I speak concerning a nation and concerning a kingdom to build and to plan it or to establish it. But if it does evil in my sight so that it does not obey my voice, then I will relent concerning that good which I have said I would benefit it. So he's talking about using the potter to shape a pot. I can either shape it for destruction or I can shape it for blessing. That's what he's saying. All right. Now over in chapter 19, he's going to continue with this analogy or he's going to resurrect it again. Why? Because the Lord tells him to. Chapter 19. Thus says the Lord, go and get a potter's earthen flask. In other words, this is a product that the potter has made. He's been over at the potter's uh, shop and he's, he can easily get one. And take some of the elders of the people and some of the elders of the priests and go out to the valley of the son of Hinnom. Again, this is the valley. Uh, for those, again, who you may remember, we went to Israel. Uh, our uh, guide told us to put our hand up with three fingers. Remember what he told us to do? And he said, as you look at those three fingers, he said, you can see the topography of Jerusalem. We have three valleys. The Kidron Valley is all the way to the right, running along the eastern side of Jerusalem. There was another valley called the Tyropean or the Cheesemakers Valley, which really was a very narrow and shallow valley that ran between the eastern side of Jerusalem and another hill that be, that was kind of known as Zion, but then it all became Zion, and that would be this finger. And then this finger was the Valley of Hinnom, which was on the southern part. And right here would be the dung gate or the potsherd gate. And that's how we figured it out. Now, very often, people would hold their hand up like this and try to figure it out. And, of course, you'd say, I don't, I don't see it. And they'd say, no, it's this way. Oh, okay. Because you'd be facing them this way and you have to turn around. That's why I turned around. Uh, okay, so much fun. Verse 2. And go out to the valley of the son of Hinnom, which is by the entry 
of the potsherd gate. See, there you have it. That's why I told you. Now, you read that and say, yeah, I know exactly where that is. Been there, walked in and out of that gate several times. Today, again, it's the dung gate. And proclaim there the words which I will tell you and say, Hear the word of the Lord, O kings of Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Behold, I will bring such a catastrophe on this place that whoever hears of it, his ears will tingle. Now remember, Jeremiah is writing in the pre-exilic time. So this is prior to the destruction of Jerusalem. Then we have 70 years of exile during the time that Daniel and Ezekiel are writing. And then along comes Zechariah. Therefore, this information that Jeremiah was was writing and reporting was available to Zechariah. And there are many scholars who uh, believe that Zechariah is using or building on the information that Jeremiah was teaching. Verse 4, Because they, in other words, the, uh, the, because Israel has forsaken me and made this an alien place because they have burned incense in it to other gods whom neither they, their fathers, nor the kings of Judah have known and have filled this place with the blood of, in- of innocence. Here we go. This gets, this gets gruesome now. They have also built the high places of of Baal to burn their sons with fire for burnt offerings to Baal which I did not command or speak nor did it come into my mind now this is the Lord speaking I wouldn't even conceive of this but they were doing it therefore behold the days are coming says the Lord that this place shall no longer be called Tophet and the word Tophet as best scholars uh, our lexicons and other Hebrew scholars think it it, it means uh, the sense of the word could mean a cooking or a heating pot a hearth so it was like a, a hot place um, and therefore they would burn this is where they burned the trash or the valley of the son of Hinnom it won't be called that but the valley of slaughter. Why? Because of the disobedience, the faithfulness, uh, the spiritual adultery in which Israel found themselves, it's going to be called the valley of slaughter because Israel's going to get slaughtered there. Like they slaughtered their sons in idolatry, Israel is going to be slaughtered. And I will make void the council of Judah and Jerusalem in this place. And I will cause them to fall by the sword before their enemies and by the hands of those who seek their lives. Their corpses I will give as meat for the birds of heaven and for the beasts of the earth. Now, in Israel, when someone died, they wanted them to be buried. They had great respect for the physical corpse. And they didn't allow it to lie around. It was in the grave in 24 hours uh, and they they put a lot of preservatives on it uh, as well so the body to them was still an important 
item even after death and to have their corpses eaten by the birds and the beasts, this is a very dishonorable and disgraceful thing to happen. And I will make this city desolate and a hissing. Everyone who passes by it will be astonished and hiss because of it, of, of all its plagues. And hissing in those days, they'd walk by and you know, it's, it's kind of like we would do, uh, it's not very polite, uh, but it's like booing. And every now and then people will do that. You know, if someone's not performing well on stage, uh, Laura, I know you never heard any of this, but someone might boo, and as they're booing, they're hissing as well. That's the understanding, the hissing. Uh, and I will cause them to eat the flesh of their sons and the flesh of their daughters, and everyone shall eat the flesh of his friend in the siege and in the desperation with which the enemies and those who seek their lives shall drive them to despair. All right, we had to kind of go through that to get, you know, to get the picture of what's happening. And so he's got this flask, verse 10. Then you shall break the flask in the sight of the men who go with you and say to them, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Even so, I will break this people and this city as one breaks a potter's vessel, which cannot be made whole again, and they shall bury them in Tophet, here in this cooking place, this hearth, till there's no place to bury. They're just going to pile them in there, bury them and bury them and bury them. Uh, I've read, and I may get a chance, I may read this tonight. It was thought, I think I have the passage, it was thought that down here, not only were people buried there and not only were the potsherds thrown there, but the potters would look for clay because they wanted clay to make their pots. And they would go into the Valley of Hinnon and they would dig holes. And they, as they dug holes, they'd find the clay and they'd get the clay and bring it out. But they really weren't all that concerned. They were not, uh, you know, landscape artists, so they weren't filling it in or putting trees in those holes. If you went down to the Valley of Hinnon, you'd just see holes everywhere. And what they were doing later on is if someone who didn't have the ability to bury themselves didn't have a tomb, didn't have a place or friends, or let's say someone was homeless and died, they just take them out there and stick them in one of those holes, bury them. I don't know if the potters later on digging would come in to find those corpses, but that's... Anyhow, that's what I've read. Verse 12. Thus I will do, do to this place, says the Lord, and to its inhabitants, and make this city like Tophet, like a hearth burning them there. And the houses of Jerusalem and the houses of the kings of Judah shall be defiled like the place of Tophet because of all the houses on whose roofs roofs they have burned incense to all the hosts of heaven and poured out drink offerings to their gods. So here we have this sense. And again, this is these are just two places that uh, Jeremiah uses the idea of the potter. Uh, Zechariah uses it this once. So let's go back to Zechariah. Let's finish off verse 13 because there's other, many other things I'd like to do with this verse. Uh, three, the potter shops were usually located near the refuse dump, broken pots. They had a lot of potchers and so they'd be throwing out the trash. They would throw out other, uh, either if they made a mistake or they had a problem with the pot and decided it was not usable, they would throw it out 
if someone was bringing something to them to see if they could fix it, sometimes they couldn't fix it. They'd break it up and throw it away, make a new one. Um, but anyhow, these would be cast out, just like we saw back in Jeremiah 18. Jeremiah uh, and now Zechariah is saying that Israel would become the shards of a previous vessel. They were a vessel to God. And they were a broken vessel, and they were going to be thrown out. For this describes Israel's despising and rejecting of the Messiah sent to them. So that's what we have. The Messiah was rejected, and therefore they are like a broken vessel, like a potter's vessel that was broken into pieces, and they would just take those out, and they would just scatter them out into the valley of Hinnom. Five, this event, L-I-T, literally, this event was literally fulfilled in Jesus' betrayal. Matthew 26, 14 through 16, and 27, 3 through 10. Now, let me uh, finish these points. I think I have two more. And then we're going to go to the New Testament to see how this plays out. Because this is a, it, it kind of is, to me at least, it's an interesting uh, event. We'll, we'll, took, we'll take a look at Matthew 26 and then Matthew 27. Six, point six here. According to Matthew 27, 9, Judas's betrayal fulfilled the words of Jeremiah. When we read Matthew 27, Matthew attributes the prophecy to Jeremiah, not Zechariah. And the question would be, why? Why is that the case? Well, let's, uh, let's at least turn to the New Testament now. Let's turn to Matthew 26. Matthew 26. And... I think we have enough time to do this. Again, I'm going slowly here, and I'm, I'm being as thorough as I can because, to me, there's a lot in these two verses, 12, 13, and then uh, picking up 14 with the broken, uh, broken staff as well, but particularly 13. Uh, when we get to Matthew 26, we see, and I th- we may have studied this when we were studying... Uh, Mary of Bethany, we may have come through here, but not certain. Uh, verse 6 is talking when Jesus was in Bethany, at the house of Simon the leper. A woman came to him having alabaster, an alabaster flask of very costly fragrant oil, and she poured it on the head, on his head, as he sat at the table. Now you remember immediately the disciples said, Ooh, boy, that is a very costly amount. Why we could have sold that and given it to the poor. You know, the people that say that, that always say, you know, we could have done a lot for the poor with that. All you have to say is hand them, you know, uh, a number to the IRS and say, if you really want to do something for the poor, why don't you call and give some of your money to the IRS? And they'll say, um, well, I was going to do that, but I'm going through a little hard time right now. You know, 
People who are always overly using the poor as an excuse to do something are never going to do it with their money. They're always going to do it with your money. But anyhow, it's right after this when the Lord says to them, why do you trouble yourself? Why do you trouble the woman? For she's done a good work for me. And then right in verse 14, I don't think it's out of the ordinary. Now, we're not told which disciples were the ones that were saying that, but we I think you can bet that Judas was one of them. Verse 14, Then one of the disciples, one of the twelve, called Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and said, What are you willing to give me if I deliver him to you? And they counted out to him 30 pieces of silver. Now, you can just about you know, see that word for word in Zechariah 11, 13. And there is no <clears throat> inference here, I don't think, that we are, um, you know, that Judas or the, the chief priest have any sense of that. It just so happens that, well, we'll pay you 30 pieces of silver. It just so happens that that is also the uh, amount that you might pay for a, a, a gourd slave, a useless slave, one that is mortally injured. And it says, and they counted out to him 30 pieces of silver. So from that time, he sought opportunity to betray him. That's the first time we read that. And when we read that, of course, I honestly can tell you that the first time I read it, I didn't relate that to much of anything. Later on studying it, I realized that it came from Zechariah. But now let's turn to 27. Matthew 27, verse 3. Now, this is quite a bit later. Judas, who has by now betrayed Jesus, uh, and because he found the time that was just right, the chief priests wanted to try to catch the Lord when he was more or less alone. Because you remember up to this point, they were really hesitant to do anything because of all the people that were always around the Lord. Therefore, when Judas comes to him and says, as a matter of fact, they'd even decided, all right, we're not going to do anything because it's just too dangerous. But when Judas comes to him and says, uh, I can betray him, they say, oh, well, now we have somebody on the inside, so we will put our plot back into motion. And, of course, he takes him at night to the Garden of Gethsemane where he does betray him. And through the night, the Lord goes through his trials. He has six trials. And finally, uh, Pilate washes his hands of him, uh, turns him over to the Jews, saying, um, all right, I'll release Barabbas, and uh, we'll crucify the Lord Jesus Christ. At that point, Judas, verse 3, then Judas, his betrayer, seeing that he had been condemned, was remorseful. Uh, the word here for remorseful is not, uh, it's not, uh, uh, yeah, metanoia-o, meaning to change his mind, but it means it is uh, the word for uh, an emotional, a remorse. Metamelomai is our word. And so this isn't a conversion. Judas is not converted at this point. He simply is regretting that he did this. And uh, I think that he's, he did not believe the Lord would ever be found guilty. 
He just believed that he would get 30 pieces of silver betraying, and maybe even that the Lord would uh, uh, then be caused to bring the kingdom in a little earlier or whatever he was thinking. But he says he brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priest and elders saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. He's got the 30 pieces of silver. He's been paid. The betrayal was made. It's been effective. He did his job. But now he's remorseful. And he's he feels guilty in keeping the money. He can't undo what's been done because the chief priests have turned this over to Pilate and Pilate now is going to crucify him because he's already released Barabbas. Or excuse me, he hasn't released him yet, but it appears that that's... And maybe that, that comes actually comes later. But anyhow, he says, and they said to him, what is that to us? You see it. In other words, that's your problem. Deal with it. Not our problem. Then he threw down the piece of silver in the temple and departed and went and hanged himself. Now, you see, here is Judas doing exactly what we've described in Zechariah. He ha- he's the one that has the 30 pieces of silver now. They said to him, hey, we've already paid, it, paid you the money. Um, you've got it. Uh, we got what we wanted. And now you deal with it. And he doesn't say, okay, and walk out. He takes it and throws it. Where does he throw it? Does he throw it in the street? Does he throw it somewhere? No, he throws it into the temple. Which is exactly what the prophecy says back in Zechariah. And again, it has, back in Zechariah's, we don't have a sense of what this is, of why it would be in the, in the, in the house of the Lord. You just read through there and say, throw it into the house of the Lord. Boy, that's, that's kind of difficult to understand why. Well, in the future, it's going to happen exactly that way. Now, what's interesting as we go on, I need to go on just a little bit here, but the chief priest took the silver pieces and said, it is not lawful to put them into the treasury because they are the price of blood. What does that mean? This is blood money. They know that what they've done is wrong. This is this was evil. Can't take the money back. And they consulted together and brought with them the uh, the potter uh, and the consoled together and bought with them the 30 pieces of silver the potter's field to bury strangers in therefore that field has been called the field of blood to this day the field of death that's where they're burying people who die verse 9 then it was fulfilled what was spoken by Jeremiah the prophet saying and they took the 30 pieces of silver, the value of him who was priced, whom they, of the children of Israel, priced, and gave them for the potter's field as the Lord directed me. Now, we can look all through Jeremiah, and we're not going to find that. We're not going to find that quotation. The closest we're going to come is Zechariah. Well, why in the world does he attribute this to Jeremiah? Well, let's take a quick look at this. Fulfillment of Jeremiah or Zechariah. Now, I did some research on this and I just thought I'd give kind of 
give you a shotgun approach in what some people said. First of all, Matthew had a memory lapse and cited the wrong prophet. You know, there's always some liberals out there that say, hey, this is no problem. Matthew probably just got it wrong. Without considering that God the Holy Spirit is the one that is um, recording Scripture using individuals to do it. So, no, he didn't get the wrong prophet. Secondly, a later copyist changed the citation from Zechariah to Jeremiah by mistake. Well, you know, that is possible, but it's highly unlikely that that would happen. I mean, there were copyists doing work. And one of the reasons we doubt that that happened is because the book of Jeremiah was well known by subsequent copyists and scholars and scribes and just because one copyist got it wrong we didn't we don't think hundreds of them then got it wrong so we'll set this one aside as well thirdly another thought was that Matthew was citing a passage in Jeremiah that was deleted from a later version of Jeremiah well that is pure speculation there is absolutely no way to substantiate that. You can come, you know. Now, admittedly, you've got Jeremiah and you got Zechariah, and who knows? I don't think so. Four. Matthew was making a composite citation of Old Testament texts that were taken from some from Jeremiah. There, by the way, there are some. Uh, pottery uh, quotations in Isaiah and this one in Zechariah and therefore Matthew is sort of making composite uh, quotation and he just attributes it gives credit to Jeremiah I think we have better, better routes to go five Matthew's citation is to the prophets in general while quoting Zechariah and there are a lot of scholars or some reputable scholars here that take this and one of the one of the reasons that they say this is that uh, Jeremiah was uh, considered one of the lead prophets now normally though they would use Isaiah not Jeremiah but Jeremiah was at the head of of a list of prophets that we periodically find uh, in uh, records uh, in, in early Israel. So this is a possibility. I don't think it's the best answer, though. Six, the prophecy was spoken by Jeremiah and recorded by Zechariah. Uh, that's sort of what we have up here previously uh, in verse in three. Uh, in other words, it wasn't deleted, but it was something that Jeremiah said, and Zechariah knew of it, and quoted it well I'm not sure that that's the best one either what I think is probably better here is that Zechariah gives the verbal fulfillment and Jeremiah gives the thematic fulfillment and let me explain that maybe a little bit more when I say that I'm saying that Jeremiah and we went back and that's why we went to Jeremiah Jeremiah goes in detail what he means by the potter and the pot 
the vessel and the pot shears and all of that and how it's supposed to be understood. And therefore, Zechariah, the only thing Zechariah contributes here really is the word potter and the 30 pieces of silver. So when I say this, we're hearing Zechariah give us the 30 pieces of silver, but when Matthew is quoting this, yes, he picks up the 30 pieces of silver from Zechariah because it's not only uh, was it prophecy, but now we have it historically here with Judas. But Matthew is thinking of all of those things that Jeremiah said. And so that's how I think this could be attributed. I think that's how we could see this. So Zechariah gives the verbal fulfillment, but Jeremiah gave the thematic fulfillment. Now let me go back and get the last. There's one other thought here that we need to finish here, and this kind of helps. Seven. Jeremiah reports the curse on Israel, and Zechariah reports the price of the ground. So uh, let me read the, what I have here. Jeremiah reports the curse on Israel of the potter's field becoming a burial ground for Israel. That was the curse. The curse is that because of your unfaithfulness, you are going to be buried in the, you're going to be buried in the valley of Hinnom. So this is the curse on Israel of the potter's field becoming a burial ground for Israel. And Zechariah gives the price of the burial ground. All of the information that we have really about the potter's field comes mostly out of Jeremiah. And then we have Zechariah saying, giving us this quote from the Lord. From the Lord. And so it's, it's sort of a... Um, a problem that theologians will wrestle with it, but I think that's a better understanding of this: is that Jeremiah and, he, and is deeply involved in the understanding of the potter and what it meant as far as prophecy was concerned, and then the Lord tells Zechariah, you know, thirty pieces of silver, throw it to the potter, like the potter's throwing out sh- uh, pot shares, and throw it in the house of the Lord. Because, as we're going to see, that's probably where potters worked a lot because they were always working with the sacred vessels. And uh, also it was an affront, but it's like throwing the, uh, the 30 pieces of silver into the, the, uh, the house of the Lord, which was the spiritual dump, as a potter would throw out the potsherds into the uh, Valley of Hinnom. All right. Well, to me, this this is, was a, a great uh, verse and a great study. I think there's a lot to it. Uh, there's more that could probably be said, but that's enough for tonight. Uh, we'll come back next week and press on into verse 14 and then into 15 when we see the false shepherd. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we're thankful for this day. We're thankful for this passage. We're thankful for Zechariah, who is demonstrating to us several things. First of all, that this... The prophecy that was given to Zechariah comes true. Father, what you prophesy, what you say, comes to fulfillment. And, Father, we know that, therefore, we can trust your word. As we've seen time after time after time after time, 
your fulfillment. You can be trusted. And will you promise to take care of us in the storm? Father, you will. And we pray for those who are facing the storm and those who have just finished with a severe storm as they face the aftermath. We pray that they would trust in you. And Father, we are never, we never fall short by trusting in you. We're also, Father, we're thankful that we're able to put these passages together with what Judas accomplished. And even though he meant it for evil, Father, you meant it for good, as Joseph would say. And we're certainly thankful for uh, your son, our Savior's sacrifice on the cross. We're thankful, Father, that uh, our atonement has been completed and that salvation is simply by believing in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's that simple for everyone, not just a select few, but for all. And Father, we pray that if there are any uh, down in Florida or over in Texas who haven't heard, we know that there certainly are, that they might uh, hear the truth and in the face of this devastating time, be persuaded, Father, to believe. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.